Well, all good morning. It is happy to be with you. I'm so happy to be with you on this uh, Lord's Day. Um, I bring you greetings from the, uh, from the saints at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, you know, as we end August and approach September, we, I, I start to realize that Labor Day is around the corner. And that means that summer is coming to an end. It's a painful fact. Uh, having grown up in Florida, uh, summer was my absolute favorite time of year. It was a time when school was out, uh, when I could be uh, with my mom, who was a school teacher. Uh, she could take me and my brothers to the pool every day. We could go to the beach. It's a time when days are longer, when summer blockbusters like Star Wars are released, new beach reads are published, people seem friendlier, schedules are more open, and lightning bugs are ripe for catching. It's also the time for family vacations and road trips. You know, at the beginning of this summer, uh, at the uh, on Memorial Day weekend, I was driving down to visit my friend Evan in Charlotte. It was a Saturday morning down I-95, and if you've done that, had that drive before, sometimes traffic is bad, and this Saturday morning it was. It was delayed, in fact, uh, by two hours just out in, as I sat in one backup after another. And perhaps this summer you've experienced something similar on, on one of your road trips, or maybe at the airport have you, as you've experienced uh, one of the uh, flight cancellations uh, that we've seen so many of this season. And perhaps during one of those traffic backups or those flight cancellations, you or someone you were traveling with asked, how much longer is it going to be? Are we there yet? Why can't we just get there? We don't like to wait to get where we're going. We just want to get where we're going. You know, last time I was with you all, we considered how it is that Christians could fight against sin and live godly lives in the present age. Paul's answer to that question in Titus chapter 2 revealed to us that we ought to be looking to God's grace alone. When we're tempted to sin and we're tempted to fall off the narrow way, we ought to remember God's saving grace, abide in his enabling grace, and hope in his future grace. But on this Lord's Day, as we press further into Paul's letter to Titus, I want us to consider a different question, perhaps an even more fundamental question, and that is this. What is the purpose of life in the present age? Not only how do we live life, but why are we here? In Titus 2, Paul explains that Christians are living between two appearings, the appearing of grace in Jesus' incarnation in the first century, and the second appearing of grace where we will see Jesus face-to-face in the future. And we know where we're going, but while we're here, we may be tempted to ask, why can't we just get there? Why can't we skip toward that second appearing? Why can't we skip the suffering, skip the persecution, skip the heartache and the pain? We wander down the pilgrim way, and it is hard. We go through life enduring temptation and suffering and trial. We get to the point where we can say with Paul, yes, death is gain. 
I long to be home with the Lord. I want the race to be over. Get me out of this wretched, sinful world. Lord, why am I here? In Titus 3, we'll see Paul's answer to that question. And that answer is what I want to convince you of today. I think it's right here in the verses uh, before us and in the surrounding verses of Titus 2 and Titus 3. And that answer is simple, but life-changing, hopefully. Christians are justified to live a regenerate life in the present age for the sake of the lost and for the sake of God's glory. That's the summary sentence of these verses before us today. Christians are justified to live a regenerate life in the present age for the sake of the lost and for the sake of God's glory. So we'll be examining Titus 2, 15 through 3, 8, and we'll, and we'll just break that sentence up into three parts. That first part, Christians are justified. We'll see that in verses four through uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. The second point is to live a regenerate life in the present age. We'll see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And then for the third point, for the sake of the lost and for the sake of God's glory. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 8. If you're going to go ahead and open up your Bibles to page 829 in the Bibles provided, we'll start by examining Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. As Paul has explained Previously in his letter to Titus, the Cretans were a pagan people. In chapter 1, Paul says that there are many who are insubordinate. There are deceivers and idle talkers. He says that there are many who profess to know God, but who deny them by their works. They are abominable and disobedient. He calls them evil beasts gluttons and liars. 
Paul holds no punches when describing the godless world of Crete. You know, here in our own day, we can look around and see a similarly wicked society. We see the dignity of life devalued. We see marriage denigrated. Truth is exchanged for relativism, and a right relationship with God is exchanged for a right relationship with the world. We look around and we see that the unbelieving world loves what God hates, and they hate what God loves. But the fact that we find ourselves in an environment like this ought not surprise us. And Paul doesn't think that the pagan culture in Crete should be surprising to the Cretan Christians to whom he's writing. Why? Because the Christians Paul is addressing were in the same boat as everyone else around them. They know what it's like to be apart from God. They know what it's like to live outside of Christ. Look again at verse 3. For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul is reminding them of their condition that they were once in. And he includes himself in it. He says, we ourselves. Yes, he's, not ta- he's talking about the Cretans, not the unbelieving world, the ones who are in the church. He's including himself in it as well. We, and, and, and uh, by implication, all Christians in his own time, and by implication, Christians throughout all of time, pe- people like you and me. This was all our state before Christ, being foolish and disobedient. This means that no one is born a Christian. No one is born with a believing heart. We come into the world with a nature that is set against God. We all were foolish, meaning we lacked spiritual understanding. Before, outside of Christ, we cannot discern the things of God, nor do we want to know the things of God. We were confounded by God's wisdom and content in our slavery to sin. We were disobedient ignoring God's law and rejecting his authority over our life. We were deceived. We had believed the same lie that Satan used in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve, that God is not who he says he is and that he will not do what he says he will do. We were led astray to make gods out of ourselves. Paul says we were slaves to passions and pleasures. The Greek word here that Paul is using is hedonis. You might think about hedonism. The idea of self-centered living, wherein we do whatever we want and whatever brings us pleasure in the moment, wherein we do whatever feels good. It's a state where we feed our lustful and earthly passions and deny ourselves nothing. This is the state that all those outside of Christ are in. And those who have experienced it before were no different from anyone else. If you are in Christ today, at one time, you were no different from the insubordinate Cretans who rejected God's authority. But despite our sinful state, God does not leave us there. Verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we looked at this appearing in chapter 2, this appearing of grace, we saw that grace appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people, old, young, rich, poor, slave, free. And now here, Paul again states that when the Lord Jesus graciously appeared, he effectively saved us. We were lost in sin, and our state was in grave danger. But the kindness and love of God appeared and secured our salvation. He saved us. He took the initiative, looked on our helpless state, and rescued us. Friends, if you are united to Christ today, it is because God has declared you righteous. Through his sovereign and saving grace, he has justified you. He does not treat you according to your sins, but makes you an heir with the hope of eternal fellowship with himself. The eternally perfect son, who was the object of all of the father's love and pleasure, came to bear the penalty due to unbelieving sinners that we might be reconciled to God, that we might stand rightly before him, that we might, not, that we might enjoy his company not only when we die, but 10,000 years after we die and forever after that. And it's not because of any good work I have done, but only because of his mercy. Friends, that's why we can sing, not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy laws to man. Thou must save, and thou alone. It's not because of anything you and I have accomplished. We were lost sinners. We were helpless, hopeless. What could have been done but get ourselves more lost? No, this is, friends, this is wholly a work of Jesus Christ. The Father looks at the penalty of sins and punishes the Son, so that he might look at you and me and see the Son's righteousness. In Christ, you are justified. No longer are you viewed as an insubordinate Christian, but you are treated as a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's why we can sing, Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We are not only justified, and that's the end of the story, No, we are justified for a purpose, and that is to live a regenerate life. This is our second point. Look again at verse 5. According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When God justifies us and declares us righteous in his sight, he also regenerates us. He changes our hearts. He gives us a new nature. And as a side note here, I just want you to see that the entire Trinity here is at work in salvation. The Father declares you righteous because of the Son's sacrifice and the Holy Spirit's washing and renewal. And in this washing, we lose our old way of life. God removes our hearts of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that is sensitive toward him. We are regenerated, made new. As one professor at Midwest, Midwestern Baptist Seminary has explained it, regeneration is the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, of granting spiritual life to each Christian 
raising them from the dead so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. This regeneration, it's the miracle of God changing the heart of a sinner so that he can respond to God. We read about this earlier as we read Ezekiel 36, when God makes a covenant to give believers a new heart, to put his spirit within them, to have the spirit shape their hearts so that they can have the capacity to obey God and walk in his statutes. Outside of this regeneration and outside of this work of the Holy Spirit, we have no capacity to do that. We're lost. We're disobedient. We're ignorant. We're foolish. That's the nature that Paul is describing in verse 3. That was all of us. And that's everyone. And that's every, every man and woman outside of Christ. But now with this new heart, we can love God and can love what God loves and can hate what God hates. But let us consider the expectations of this regenerated life, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Friends, this means that we view government and the authorities placed within our society as those who have been instituted by God. Whether they're lifeguards, police officers, teachers, employers, mayors, or presidents, obedience and submission toward them is the norm for the Christian. Our disposition is not in subordination. Paul here is giving us a, a contrast here with the unbelieving Cretans, who he has described as rebellious and disobedient. In contrast, our disposition toward government is submissive. This, of course, is not to mean that government cannot be wrong or cannot err. We should not construe this to mean that we ought to obey authorities when they tell us to disobey God or to do things which Scripture explicitly teaches against. But it does mean that our general disposition is acceptance of their authority, not grumbling, not revolt. We do this to reflect the reality that we serve a kind Lord. Our master is King Jesus, who has acted with perfect kindness, perfect love, and perfect mercy. In our, in our loyal service to our king, we respect the earthly order which he has ordained. How could we even grumble, much more reject the lot that a perfectly kind Lord has given us through the earthly powers that he has placed over us? Our God is kind even to those who are unloving and selfish. Given our new position before God, justified and regenerated, we thus act in the same way, including to unrighteous rulers. And living a life that is submissive and respectful to the governing authorities, we show those around us that we are only here temporarily and we reflect the eternal king whom we serve. We reflect a future and better kingdom. We show that governments and regimes cannot save us. We show that elections, new laws, and changes within the justice system do not have our ultimate love or trust. As my pastor Mark Dever down at CHBC has said, America is an experiment. The church is a certainty. While we are here, we serve a different king as if on a diplomatic mission to tell others about this sure, better, and quickly coming kingdom. 
Similarly, in verse 1, Paul tells us to be ready for every good work. In the context of government in society, we are ready to, be, to contribute to the common good. We ought to be ready to help our neighbors. We want to contribute to the well-being of those around us and be a force for good in the lives of our friends and neighbors. You might compare this to the Cretans Paul was rebuking in the first chapter. They professed to know God, but denied him with their works, and they were unfit for any good work. They were useless for God's kingdom. They were not laying the ground for, the adva- for an environment suitable to gospel advancement. Now let me ask, have you considered how you are being used for the advancement of God's kingdom? What opportunities do you have to do good to those around you? Or are you acting with sluggishness and disregard for the unbelieving world? If you're not sure, maybe chat about it with your spouse over lunch today. It's a great thing to figure out what opportunities are before you. Consider how you can serve an elderly church member, a sick neighbor, a coworker who's a single mom or or foster parents in the area. When you think about it, imagine what you as a church can do together. Two members here get together to cook a few meals for an expecting mom. Two members there volunteer their time to repaint a deck for a neighbor. Three members here could uh, take turns reading the Bible to a homebound Christian who just doesn't have the sight to see anymore. Using the interests and the gifts that you have in the sphere of influence that God has given you, friends, you can do immense good for the kingdom of God. Paul further challenges here to speak evil of no one. He challenges us not to slander. That means we aren't to tell half-truths about our government leaders. We don't gossip about our neighbors. And we don't exaggerate to purposely damage the reputation of our enemies. We don't speak ill of our coworkers or employers. When I think about it, friends, you see the news today, you, whether you go online or on Twitter or just walk, turn on the TV, it, it's, is it not enough that lies are told about Christians? That today Christians are wrongly accused of being bigoted in backwoods? Must we engage in the same kind of vile slander and disparaging of others? May it not be. Paul says that we are to avoid quarreling and instead to be peaceable. You know, I, I think about all those times when I was growing up with, with two brothers. We wrestled, we argued, we had plenty of times where one person instigated one thing and we respond. And My mom, being a good mom, always quoted Romans 11 to us. So long as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. We, we, don't, ca- we don't seek to cause strife or to have the attitude of an, a- an agitator. Again, on social media and TV, talking heads, you see who these agitators are. Can we consider that the Lord, is the Lord we serve argumentative? Is the Christ who dines with sinners belittling? Does the shepherd who lead us by still waters stir the pot? Or rather, is he careful with every word? Does he speak the truth in all love? We are to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. We're to be considerate. And this regenerated life 
we stop acting stubbornly and stop insisting on our own way. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. What does love look like? We aren't rude. We aren't boastful or arrogant. But we live with humility, especially with those who most easily test our patience. And we don't limit this kind of courtesy just to our close friends or our family members or to our fellow church members. No, we continuously demonstrate this courtesy toward all people. Toward strangers in traffic. To the waiter at the restaurant who gets our order wrong toward difficult co-workers and disagreeable neighbors. We do so because we were those same people. We were foolish and disobedient. We were hating one another and were God-haters. God showed, but God showed us immense love, steadfast love, even in our sin. He was gentle with us when we deserved his wrath. How could we hold, withhold such gentleness and kindness from those who are in the same state that we once were? Charles Spurgeon has said, Eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. Friends, when, when times in prayer and times in scripture, I'm reading scripture and I stare into the darkness of my own sin. How can I feel anything but pity but for those who are still in their sin and in need of salvation. How can we not desire to do them well, to do good to them when God has showed compassion on us? I know the depths of my sin. I hope you know the depths of your, begin to understand the depths of your sin. I can only begin to fathom the wrath and the justice that God ought to have showed me. And then and when he shows me kindness, when he shows me grace and mercy, how can I not desire to show that same kind of compassion on my lost friend, hoping that they may get a glimpse of the love and kindness of Christ? None of these instructions, of course, are new information to the Christians in Crete. Paul begins verse 1 by saying, remind them, meaning that they've heard this message before. And my, my guess is that we all have heard this message at one, at one time in our lives. But Paul here wants to drill this message home because we are so prone to forget. Even when we're made new and regenerated and given a new heart, and with the Holy Spirit residing in us, we still battle against our sinful selves. Every day we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, and every day we need to be reminded of how we are to walk in love with Christ. But to what end and for what purpose? This, my friends, is the heart of the answer to our question, our purpose in the present age. Again, this is what I, I want you to put, walk home with. Christians are justified to live a regenerate life in the present age for the sake of the lost and for the sake of God's glory. Friends, we live with a mission in mind. The good of our lost neighbor and the exaltation of the glorious God whom we serve. Look again at verse 15 and verse 8. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying And these things I want you to affirm constantly 
that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. You could almost adjust that last word to say all men. Paul is not telling the Christians in Crete to be good simply for the purpose of being good and to appear well before men. We don't act uh, gently merely so that we might receive a good merit at school or so that people will remember us fondly. God regenerates us and calls us to walk in his statutes because our good works benefit our neighbor. Yes, in an immediate and a physical sense, but much more in an eternal and spiritual sense. Friends, it is good for the unbelieving world to see examples of people living in a right relationship with God because it shows how good our God is. Consider Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The good that you and I do, any community outreach that we might do, a kind word that we give to a friend, none of that is for self-gain. We follow God's laws out of love for others and out of concern for God's fame. We do it because there are poor, needy sinners who need the gospel, who need to be saved and reconciled. When they see that someone like them, who was like them and is now transformed in believing the gospel, and now they're walking in fellowship with God, walking in the light, they begin to think, what has changed? They may start asking questions and, and by God's grace, hopefully hear the gospel. And through all of it, God is glorified. That means whenever you engage in community outreach and you're meeting physical needs, that's a great thing, friends. And with all the great suffering in the world, there is great need for people who are deeply engaged in the alleviation of suffering. I was just watching the news yesterday in Pakistan. Floods have killed a thousand people and displaced hundreds of thousands of others. You can, whatever news story about a, a new bombing, or whether it's a friend getting cancer, there is great suffering. And we care about all of it here and now, but we need to put a greater emphasis on the eternal suffering that they face apart from Christ. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering, as John Piper could say. The greatest good we can do for our suffering neighbor is to help them see the greatest good in all of the universe, God himself. We want to do things that are profitable and good for men. We show them and we teach them these things. Earlier in Titus 2, uh, verse 9, Paul writes, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The scripture here, Paul is teaching that bond servants, through their submission, can actually help their masters rightly value God and the gospel. Similarly, friends, God would have us act kindly and gently towards the, toward the outside world so that they can profit and see the greatest good, God himself. Parents and grandparents, this means that when you're teaching your kids and grandkids to be generous and to tell the truth, you're not only doing it so that you can look well, so your kid can look well-mannered 
and you can receive the applause of parents on the, on the playground. You're doing it so that those young ones will see Christ as an honest, faithful, and generous Savior. At work, you work with diligence and don't cut corners, not primarily so that you can get promoted or obtain a higher salary. You do it so that your employer and your coworkers can see that you serve a trustworthy God. On social media, you don't post primarily to get likes and elicit certain reactions. You post so that your brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraged to follow our Lord and so that your lost friends and family members may see God as merciful and kind. And we do it all with humility and perfect courtesy because if something is to offend, may it be the gospel message alone not the manner in which we carry it or present it. Similarly, friends, if we live double lives, if we preach love but live with bitterness and envy in our hearts, we diminish the glory of God in the eyes of unbelievers and make him out to be unreliable or two-faced. Paul is deeply concerned with making an impression on the lost world. And he wants Titus to proclaim the true news of a saving God to the pagans in Crete. And the best evidence for that claim is a multitude of people living with regenerated lives. Similarly, Paul is concerned with what it is that Titus and the Christians are sharing, the message of, uh, that they're carrying. If they were to make the focus of their message something other than Jesus Christ crucified, they would be representing something other than the kingdom of God. That's why Paul tells Titus to preach on these things, the things that he's been going on for all of Titus about how to live life in the present age and about the great news of the gospel that, uh, of Jesus Christ saving us and the day that we long to see him. Church members, this means, should expect their pastors to teach these things and to constantly affirm these things. Because these are the truths, friends, which save and which sanctify. You know, I'm so glad that y'all have sung show for a pastor. I know he teaches you these things week in and week out. And so I'm so grateful for the work he's doing here. But if the Lord ever takes you from here to, to move to somewhere else, a new neighborhood or a different state, let me encourage you to look for a church where these things are taught. Look for a pastor who preaches the Bible, not someone who wants to tell you about how you can live your best life now, not someone who primarily wants you to have God-sized dreams or who questions the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. These things are great truths which deserve our constant attention. These are vast oceans of the goodness of God, the mercy of God. Just these few verses, friends, just these few sentences are filled with such great news, we could spend weeks looking at each sentence. Oh, how great it would be to meditate for weeks on what it means to become an heir in the family of God. How long could we consider our sinful state? And for how many weeks could we marvel at the saving work of the Trinity or all the different ways that we might do good to our neighbor? We can swim in these truths for decades. Let's never move on. Let's not think that the gospel is merely the means by which we get saved and then consider more important and pressing cultural issues. 
No, friends, let's swim in these truths for however the long the Lord gives us. I won't do that today as, as our time concludes. Uh, I want us to think about just what it is we've heard. Jesus Christ has generously and kindly saved us and made us heirs of eternal life and adopted us into the family of God. And if we are to invite others into eternal life, we ought to have lives that reflect this glorious inheritance and reflect the one who gives the inheritance. Indeed, our time in the present age is marked by strife and temptation and trial. It is a weary pilgrim way that we walk, and it is totally understandable to ask, why can't we just get there? But none of it is purposeless. All of it is totally meaningful. And that meaning is wrapped up in the advancement of the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. There will be a day when the Lord calls us home. We will surely get to the end of our journey, and we eagerly await the day when we see Christ face to face. But for now, to live is Christ. To be Christ in the world and to exalt Christ around the world. Let's pray. Father, as we find ourselves walking through a world that worships vain trinkets and material goods, that idolizes the self and exchanges your goodness and glory for created things, we pray that we will be strengthened to walk out our pilgrim way. We pray that in our moments of waiting and suffering and temptation, that we pray to keep the end in mind. We pray that we remember that we are here for a purpose that extends well beyond comfort and well beyond our material well-being. Father, I pray that we will see we are here to increase the fame of your name. In Jesus' name.